Welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown for Wednesday, June 30th, 2021. My name is Tom Hollingsworth and happy Meteor Watch Day to all of you amateur astronomers out there. Um, we are happy to be bringing you a great lineup of tech news stories this week. And I am joined by my wonderful co-host in his snazzy shirt today, Mr. Stephen Foskett. Stephen, thank you for joining us. Why, thank you very much, Master Tom Barr. Well, we're going to go ahead and kick off with some of the uh, interesting stories that uh, hopped across our desk. And uh, well, of course, the, the first interesting story is probably going to be Apple, um, mostly because they're partnering with somebody else. So uh, a report that was released this week by The Information uh, said that Apple is increasing the amount of data that they're storing on Google Cloud. Uh, the report stated that Apple has stored eight exabytes worth of data on Google Cloud storage and is on track to spend $300 million on the service in 2021. Now, that means they're up 50% from where they were last year. And the question now becomes, is Apple unable to store all of this data on their own private iCloud data center storage? Or are they just looking to take advantage of economies of scale or things like that? Or does this just mean that people are really, really wanting to store things on iCloud and Apple's trying to keep up? Um, Stephen? Could this possibly be a statement from Apple that multi-cloud is the way to go? I suppose. I mean, who, who knows? Uh, we, the first thing we got to say is we just can't know what Apple is thinking here. They could be they could be doing it could be any of those things. It could be they don't have the capacity. It could be that this is just burst capacity because this is Apple we're talking. And while eight exabytes sounds like a lot of data, when you have uh, the scale that they have, that literally could just be burst capacity. Who knows? or it could be capacity for a specific application. Maybe there's some application that Google's cloud is just good with. Um, you know, thing that springs to mind immediately is, you know, Google has a lot of AI processing capability in their cloud. Maybe Apple is not just leveraging their storage, but also leveraging their, um, you know, TensorFlow image processing in the cloud. We don't know, but on the other hand, I'd say this is probably good news for the industry because frankly, um, as we, as with international relations as well, the more uh, collaboration we have between um, gorillas, the less battles we have between gorillas. And maybe if Google and Apple are working together, and according to this report, Apple is Google's single biggest customer, so big that Google apparently nicknamed them Bigfoot. Um, maybe Google's not going to be jerks to Apple and maybe Apple's not going to be jerks to Google and maybe that helps everyone. So uh, yeah, I, I guess if there's a take home message for enterprise tech, it's that multi-cloud is a real thing and um, even Apple does it. So if Apple can do it, well, maybe you should be thinking about it too, instead of trying to own everything. So Tom, let's turn now to a company that we're both pretty familiar with. Uh, zero trust is a hot commodity right now, and Illumio is making the most of it. The security firm announced last week that they've secured a Series F funding round of $225 million, led by Tama Bravo. Roger that. Uh, the valuation of the company came in around $2.75 billion, making them a shiny unicorn in the security space. CEO Andrew Rubin deflected questions about the status of a future IPO on a recent call. Um, Tom, we're pretty familiar with Illumio. Uh, what do you think about this? 
Well, they are definitely in the middle of a very hot market for zero trust because, uh, I mean, we covered a zero trust story on the rundown last week. We've been talking to a lot of companies who are integrating zero trust network architecture into a lot of the things that they're doing. When you look at the number of breaches that we're seeing, zero trust seems to be a shiny hammer for all of those nails. But the thing that gives me pause is one, a series F, that's late, like really late. Uh, two, Tama Bravo led the round, and um, yeah, uh, I'll put this diplomatically. I am curious to see how they are going to recover their investment here. Um, and the third thing that gave me pause as I was reading through the story is that the CEO is, um, you know, the old Daffy Duck, you know, ho, ho, ha, ha, turn, dodge, parry, thrust, anytime anybody asks him about an IPO, because it sounds to me like he's in over his head. When it comes to that, I mean, his his statement was about as non-statement as you can get. Well, you know, if we keep helping our customers the way that we're supposed to, then an IPO is just a natural part of the process. Yeah, that sounds like somebody wants to get paid and he's not going to be one of them because he owes money to a lot of different people. Um, I love the people at Illumio. I think they're doing a really great job and I really hope that this succeeds for them. But I really hope that that success means that they're able to continue to provide a good product for their customers and not that they're going to have to unwind the long, long Series F list of people that have funded this company. All right, Stephen, let's talk about your home state. Oh, sorry, I'm, let's talk about the state where you live right now. Uh, because I'm not saying that Ohio is quickly becoming the IT version of Florida, but this story does make you wonder. The Ohio legislature has dropped a controversial element of their state budget that would have limited local governments in their ability to offer broadband services. The budget amendment would have also forced municipalities to shut down their existing services and prevent new ones from being formed. Now, according to news reports, this amendment was not discussed publicly before it was attached to the bill in a party line vote in the Ohio Senate. It was dropped in the reconciliation process because it was not present in the House version. And now everyone's making statements about the fact that they really didn't mean to do that, even though they did vote for it. Um, Stephen, could the Ohio government really have been short-sighted enough to say, well, we don't need to encourage cities to provide their own broadband? Yeah, this is a really interesting thing, and not just for people in Ohio. So just to, to help kind of understand what's going on here, essentially wording that would have eliminated, like basically put, not just put the brakes on, but, but rolled back and destroyed um, municipal funded broadband in Ohio mysteriously appeared in an omnibus budget bill and no one knows who put it there. And even now, no one knows who put it there. Uh, full disclosure, one of my friends is actually an Ohio state rep and was one of the people who uh, this week uh, moved to keep this out of the house bill and voted against it. So um, I, I'm, I feel like I'm on the side of angels here. Um, also, full disclosure, this episode of The Rundown comes to you courtesy of Hudson Velocity Municipal Broadband in Ohio, which would have been outlawed if this had passed. In other words, we're a customer. Um, we enjoy access to municipal fiber gigabit. And frankly, this law made no sense unless your last name happens to be Windstream or Spectrum or whatever the people that work for those companies' names are. I mean, the point is that, and this is the scary thing, 
somehow the industry managed to get industry-friendly language inserted into a state Senate budget bill that got perilously close to passing and no one knows who did it. This shows the extent to which companies are meddling in laws in ways that benefit them. Because the only people who really don't like municipal broadband are the people who compete with municipal broadband. In other words, you know, your spectrums and your wind streams and your, you know, cable companies and telcos and those, those people. And they hate it. In fact, 19 states have laws that would block municipal broadband from even being created, which is funny because in many of the other states, uh, not only are they moving to get rid of laws that would restrict this, they're actually encouraging it because what they've found is that municipal broadband works. Frankly, just like other municipal utilities, and as a reminder, many states have uh, municipal electric, municipal sewer, um, these utilities, they work really, really well. And in states that have municipal broadband, it's actually brought tremendous benefits to businesses. Uh, for example, here in Ohio, um, like I said, in my town, the fastest internet connection you could get when we started Gestalt IT was 50 megabits. And we're not in the sticks here either. We're in the suburbs of a major city. And the fastest we could get was 50 megabits. Uh, the community came together and created municipal broadband with gigabit fiber and suddenly the incumbents started offering fiber in town too to compete. Well, that's good, that's called competition. They weren't competing before and now they are. But that being said, the municipal option is still a really good option and a lot of people are going for it. So uh, frankly, I am frustrated to think that companies can get their own wording inserted into bills and get their own stuff inserted into laws. And I'm glad that uh, Ohio moved to block this thing. So uh, speaking of, um, well, <laughs> short-sighted uh, actions here, um, AWS announced last week that they're getting into the encrypted messaging game with a pickup of Wicker. Uh, the acquisition comes as AWS is looking to expand their service offerings to organizations that need secure communication mechanisms such as healthcare and legal. Uh, but one of the things that's interesting about Wicker is that we got to put up air quotes when we say encrypted because they were very clear that they wanted to work with government agencies to provide ways to lawfully decrypt communications when there was a warrant. In other words, uh, this is only sort of encrypted with a back door. Uh, Tom, what's the end game and why is Amazon part of this? Uh so this is a very fascinating story for me, Stephen, because I actually talked to the CEO of Wicker, Joel Wallenstrom, about two years ago when I was at Black Hat. And that's where he talked about the fact that he believes that encrypted messaging systems like Signal and Telegram are going to cause a massive problem because they are allowing China to beat people to the punch because the Chinese can decrypt communications. Um, specifically, when I was talking to him, he didn't use the word backdoor, which is one of the ones that we commonly use when we talk about having people with the ability to decrypt the communications. He specifically talked about the front door. He said that the government should be able to come in and use a key to decrypt communications in a messenger where they only have the key, which, sorry, my privacy willies just started shivering because no, I, I do not want anybody to have that. But I think that the pickup here is that Wicker was a, an easy pickup for Amazon. And when you look at the story that announced this, 
they're really trying to move into spaces where encrypted communications are kind of important. Think about um, electronic healthcare record exchange. Think about legal conversations. And when you think about the number of times that you've had to have conversations over the last year with people that you would normally want to have them face-to-face, -face, you see how important this might be. I just wonder what's gonna happen when there's an exchange and it happens over Wicker and the FBI suddenly wants to get involved and right or wrong, I mean, they obviously wouldn't be getting involved unless there was a really good reason for it. It just makes me worried that we're headed down a slippery slope. And I hope that uh, Andy Jassy is aware of that and that he is doing everything he can to kind of defend our privacy, because I have, you know, and Stephen, you and I have talked about this. I set the high watermark for privacy defense now at Tim Cook's Apple. Um, we will not only rigorously defend your privacy as much as possible, we will actively defend your privacy. We will find the holes that people are using and we will plug them as quickly as possible because your data, your privacy, your PHI is more important to us than a silly government. So here's hoping this pays off. All right, Stephen, we do have a little bit of a sad story to note here, but we kind of have to talk about it just for a second. Um, the AP reported last week that John McAfee, the creator of the popular, popular antivirus software that does bear his name, was found dead in a Spanish prison. Uh, McAfee had been held in Barcelona since last October when he was arrested on charges that were filed in the state of Tennessee from tax evasion tied to promotion of cryptocurrencies and uh, some other things like his uh, ghostwritten autobiography that he kind of forgot to pay taxes on. Um, the judge in Spain had just ruled that McAfee could be extradited to the United States to face those charges like the day before, where his lawyer had basically said if he gets extradited, he'll spend the rest of his life in prison. Um, now, we all know that John McAfee has been pretty polarizing ever since he left McAfee and Associates and has kind of become a public media figure. And Lord knows that I can't spend a whole lot of time telling you all about it. Even the Wikipedia page is gonna require the next hour of your time. Um, but I mean, we've even seen him gone so far as to record a humorous video where he encouraged people to uninstall the antivirus program that he basically lent his name to. Now, I know that you know the circumstances around his death are uh, creating some discussion in the industry and I really don't wanna get into that. But Stephen, do you have any thoughts on uh, the passing of an industry titan like John McAfee? Yeah, I think that's the right way to approach this. Um, frankly, we're not going to get into conspiracy theories. And um, McAfee was colorful enough as a person that uh, he doesn't need conspiracy theories. This guy was a walking conspiracy practice. Um, he did so many crazy, nutty off the wall, uh, genuinely amusing and genuinely horrifying things in his life that, uh, you know, we don't need to embellish that. Uh, frankly, uh, it's a shame that he's gone because this is a guy who, uh, he was an important contributor to the early days of computing. Uh, he was an outspoken um, supporter of, uh, of civil rights, you could say. Uh, he probably went over the line on pretty much everything he ever did in his entire life. And um, I think that that's the uh, eulogy, I think, that fits him best. Um, this is a person who was just over the line. Uh, but he's gone. And um, that's just how it is. Uh, interestingly, 
his name will live on in computing. So Intel bought McAfee and Associates uh, and quickly changed the name to get rid of his controversial name. But when it got spun back out of Intel, the company embraced the name and went back to the name McAfee, uh, even though they're quick to point out that he, he hasn't had anything to do with the company in 25 years. So, uh, you know, his name will live on. Certainly his uh, legacy and, uh, will live on as a colorful figure in the industry. And um, from the looks of it, the conspiracy theories are going to live on too. And I kind of could do with a little less of that. Yeah, unfortunately, that's kind of the world that we live in now. But, you know, I'll just say this. I hope John McAfee finds the rest and relaxation and peace that uh, seem to have eluded him for a while. So let's move on to uh, a couple of our closer look stories. Uh, there were some things we wanted to dig into a little bit deeper here in the industry. And the first one comes from friend of the show, Intel, uh, because as many have suspected, Intel officially announced that their next generation Xeon platform, known as Sapphire Rapids, will appear, but not until Q2 of 2022. This is a few months later than previously suggested, and it's no surprise given the late introduction of Ice Lake this year, which we covered as part of a special Tech Field Day presentation, and the fact that there's so much that's new in Sapphire Rapids that it was gonna be hard to kind of squeeze it in right there. Now, what does this schedule change mean for Intel, Stephen, and really for the industry in general? Because I know that when processor architecture starts slipping, that's just the, the little P at the top of the hill that creates an avalanche down the road. Yeah, and I think that that's the important thing here. And uh, we saw this with Ice Lake, and we saw this with Cooper Lake, and we're going to see this with Sapphire Rapids as well. Uh, these things are incredibly, incredibly difficult. Each one of these things is a moonshot to develop. And to have them slip a quarter is not a surprise. But that being said, um, what does it even mean to have them be delivered in a quarter? And I think one of the things we learned from Ice Lake is that it doesn't actually mean very much at all. Uh, essentially, uh, Intel uh, was shipping Ice Lake uh, parts to select uh, vendors uh, six months before the announcement. And Intel just started shipping Ice Lake parts in volume to the channel six months after the announcement, well, three months. But, um, you know, essentially, uh, these products don't just appear at your local friendly Newegg uh, the day they're announced. They have a, an interesting launch cadence, especially the big data center products. So, uh, you know, Ice Lake, as I said, uh, they were shipping those things to hyperscalers for a while before even the product was announced. Uh, by all expectations, Sapphire Rapids will probably be in the hands of hyperscalers at the end of 2021, about six months before the announcement. And uh, that's just how Intel does things. Uh, similarly, uh, they probably won't be widely used and widely available to data center customers until the middle or the end of 2022, because again, that's kind of how things go. Uh, so I wouldn't worry much about the release date, except in terms of planning for another exciting keynote, maybe in person. Uh, where we'll be able to uh, get some uh, time with the Intel execs and ask them some details. Be for me, the interesting aspect here is the very short time frame between Ice Lake and Sapphire Rapids. Even adding this quarter in uh, doesn't change the fact that, as my good friend Patrick Kennedy said, Intel's in an ice pickle with their current platform. 
uh, Ice Lake uh, replaced the low socket count, one and two socket versions of the Xeon, uh, brought PCIe Gen 4, uh, brought uh, more memory channels and more um, advanced instructions. But it was really a, a bit of an iteration over the previous platforms. And frankly, Sapphire Rapids brings so much more to the table that a lot of uh, OEMs and hyperscalers maybe aren't going to really embrace Ice Lake all that much at all because they know that something better is just around the corner. This change in schedule is not going to change that at all. And what's so better about Sapphire Rapids, you ask? Well, certainly we expect that Intel will have more cores because more cores is better. And that's what everybody's doing, right? In fact, they've already talked about the fact that it's probably going to have more cores. But more importantly is the fact that Sapphire Rapids brings some other important improvements to the Xeon platform to allow them to better compete with AMD and ARM. And I will point out that we just recorded a video on Friday with Intel where, uh, now they didn't talk about Sapphire Rapids, but uh, where one of the uh, honchos over at the Xeon division went directly at AMD and kind of laid out the, uh, the challenge that Intel is placing in hyperscalers in the cloud to the obvious advantages that AMD's Epic brings with more cores. And essentially it boils down to this, AMD is delivering more cores and faster cores, but Intel is delivering cores that do more and that the whole more and faster thing may not be as important when you're talking about actual workloads. So for example, one of the things that Intel brings is specialized processing for uh, machine learning and other uh, matrix math operations that AMD simply doesn't have. And these things are not um, a little thing either. Uh, we're talking instructions that make the CPU 30 times faster at some tasks than uh, previous generation parts. And frankly, that's enough to make up for the fact that you've got half as many cores and that each core is maybe 5% slower. So we've got to keep this stuff in mind. Uh, Sapphire Rapids will continue this. In fact, Intel has already said that it includes uh, advanced matrix extensions, AMX. And this uh, to me is a real cannon shot at AMD. Because as I said, AMD already doesn't have what Ice Lake and Cooper Lake have in terms of advanced instructions. And Intel is now saying, guess what? Sapphire Rapids is gonna have even more of that that works even better and even faster. And that's a big advancement. So frankly, right there, we see an advancement that's probably worth having for hyperscalers that use that kind of math. Additionally, uh, Sapphire Rapids is gonna bring high bandwidth memory to the table. HBM is something we've all been looking for for a while, and it essentially gives us an even faster tier of memory that you can include uh, that has stacked chips so that it can be a little bit more dense, it can have more channels, and uh, more memory channels is one of the things that AMD brought with the Epic processors that AMD matched with Ice Lake, and now, by all accounts, Intel is going to actually leapfrog AMD in terms of memory bandwidth, so that's a big one. Another thing that it's bringing to the table is PCIe Gen 5. So AMD actually got the jump on Intel with Gen 4, and, and AMD's Epic is in fact the uh, reference platform for Gen 4 PCIe in the data center, not Intel. That's a real slap in the face for the folks in Oregon. So they're bringing Gen 5 uh, PCIe 
to the table with Sapphire Rapids, and they're hoping that they can be the reference platform once again for the connectivity that's going to dominate the data center. And the reason it's going to dominate the data center is the other thing that Sapphire Rapids brings, which is CXL or Compute Express Link. This is a cool disaggregation technology that allows you to have modules of uh, interfaces or memory or uh, processors, uh, GPUs, that sort of thing. And they don't necessarily even have to reside in the same chassis. So think about the Thunderbolt ports on your MacBook Pro. Now imagine that those things were PCIe Gen 5 data center uh, ready and had really high tech advanced connections right back into the CPU. That's what Intel's bringing to the table with CXL. And there again, uh, Intel promises to be ahead of AMD and ARM in the delivery of PCIe Gen 5 and CXL 1.1 with Sapphire Rapids. So, all this is to say that this is a big, big change. If you looked at Ice Lake and said, okay, more memory, more cores, that's great. You're gonna look at Sapphire Rapids and say, this thing doesn't look like anything I've ever seen before. This is a totally different kind of server. And that's what Intel is promising. And that frankly is why I'm not at all bothered by the fact that they just announced that it's gonna be Q2 instead of Q1 next year, because this thing is gonna be huge. Yeah, and I would argue that this is Intel falling back on their legacy of building complicated instruction sets over reduced instruction sets. I mean, anybody who's watched Hackers can remember the risk versus CISC argument, but reality says that Intel knows that they can build complicated machinery better than other people, and they're going to rely on that heritage when everybody else is saying, just build more cores that do simple things faster. And when you look at the supporting architecture that you just laid out, that is to support what I would say is a monster core that has so much capability, it can do pretty much anything you want. And I have also been a fan for many years of the wait until it's done before you ship it. Uh, whether it is you know, a AAA video game title or a movie or any kind of technology, don't push out the door because the investors say that you need to have a win this quarter. You really need to wait until everything is finished, because if you push this out the door and it's not complete, you will never hear the end of it. And let's be fair, as great as Pat Gelsinger is, he needs a big home run in order to put Intel back on the map in a good way. And I think that Sapphire Rapids has the capability to do that. So if the crew at Intel says they need to wait a few more months before they're ready to do this, Let's give them a few more months before we start saying that the sky is falling. So speaking of uh, nothing to see here uh, stories, uh, LinkedIn doesn't want you to connect a data breach that just happened to anything they did. Um, this career site was the target of a massive leak of user info. On June 22nd, a uh, malicious uh, person uh, started advertising data from some 700 million LinkedIn users. And a sample of a million users was validated, not just as accurate, but even up to date to 2021. Uh, when he was questioned about this breach, uh, this hacker claimed that he had exploited the LinkedIn API to harvest things like email addresses, phone numbers, uh, professional backgrounds, and even salary ranges. LinkedIn has responded with claims that some of the data collected wasn't available via the API and must have been collected from other sources. 
And they also said that the breach must have occurred uh, elsewhere because scraping the API is a violation of their terms of service. Nobody would ever violate terms of service. So Tom, uh, how much trouble are we expecting to see here in terms of LinkedIn and how much concern should we have about this? Well, if the report is to be believed, this is something like 92% of all of their user accounts that had some form of the data pulled on it. Now, a lot of it's public, you know, like it's, uh, you know, email address, name, phone number. So, okay. And they had a big data breach of about 500 million records before, which doesn't look well for them. And normally a huge data breach wouldn't even really register anymore when you think about it. I mean, they didn't get passwords. They didn't even get password hashes. They didn't get any kind of confidential info unless it's something you just didn't share publicly. It's the fact that LinkedIn immediately jumped in and said, okay, well, we saw one bit of data in here or two bits of data that couldn't have been pulled from our API. So obviously this must've come from somewhere else because no one would dare scrape our API because that's naughty, naughty. I'm like, yeah, and walking into a bank with a firearm and demanding all the money in the vault is a crime and people still do it. Don't just assume that because you say it's against the rules, that doesn't mean that somebody's going to go out there and, do, and try to do this very thing. How do, you, how do you prosecute that? Do you look for people who are trying to attach too many API requests at one time? Do you have like a lag of, you know, scraping that you can then punish people somehow? Because I'm going to say that if your system is geared to let people do whatever they want, and then if you catch them at a certain threshold, maybe, you know, like tell them they're in timeout, you're not actually trying to solve the problem. You're just hoping nobody figures out you have bad security. And at this point, as much as I hate to say it, you've been owned by Microsoft for five years. So this is as much a Microsoft problem now as it is anything else. And you know that they know how to fix this problem because you can't do the same kind of enumeration in Active Directory. We also have to be aware of the fact that in everybody that's watching this show knows we have seen a significant uptick in the amount of people who are capable of doing data breaches and not just one-offs either. Like you consider that this is the second one that LinkedIn's been hit by in API land, you know that a third one's coming. And you have to know that uploading your data somewhere is going to mean that it will be exposed at some point in the future. I'm, I now live in a world where anytime I fill out any kind of information in a form, I know that that will eventually wind up somewhere on the internet in a place I didn't expect it to be because so many people are getting so good at breaking into these places and taking things that quite honestly, they have access to because APIs make it a lot easier than you think. I'm not saying we need to shut down APIs. APIs are a very important way to do things. What I'm saying is, is that companies need to be more careful about how they allow people to do API access. I don't know, meter it. If your rule says nobody can access all 750 million records in our system to scrape them, okay, cool. How many would you expect someone to reasonably able to be able to pull down in a day? A thousand? Which sounds like a lot to me, but I'm not the one who's writing these scripts. Cool, rate limit. You pull down more than a thousand records in a day, you're not just in timeout, we're timeouting your, your account until you call us and tell us what you're up to. And then we will read you the riot act if you're doing something you're not supposed to. But if you're just sitting here wagging your finger, you are not fixing the problem. You're shifting the blame and it will not end well for you in the court of public opinion. Yeah, I think that um, unfortunately though, uh, there may be no way to stop a 
a dedicated person from scraping a site. I mean, it's publicly available information, uh, or at least it's moderately available information. Um, one of the ways that LinkedIn has tried to keep people from scraping is by limiting access to some information to people in your network. But of course, then we've seen a lot of uh, bot accounts joining and people, frankly, a lot of people, even people that listen to the show and people in our friend network um, have a policy of just accepting every LinkedIn request because why not? Well, this is why not? Because that's where this information comes from. Because if you're a friend of a friend, the website will let people see your information. And if people randomly uh, accept contacts from people they don't know, then that's getting around LinkedIn's attempt, you know, moderate as it is, to stop this from happening. Frankly, I, I, I'm going to go back to what Tom said a few minutes ago, which is if you put this stuff up on, the, on a website that is publicly or widely accept, uh, accessible, it's going to get scraped. And it did. And LinkedIn kind of didn't get hacked here. And this kind of isn't a hack or a dump or anything. It's just a scrape. And scrapes happen, and I guess that's how it's going to be. So, but it is really Microsoft's problem, and I do have a suspicion that Microsoft has some ways of keeping this from happening. If only uh, LinkedIn would work a little harder to keep it from happening. Yeah. All right, Stephen. I wanted to close out here with an interesting story that kind of revolves around storage and security, uh, because there is an exploit out there in the wild that's making. Uh, a lot of problems for people who use Western Digital's MyBook Live storage system. Uh, the issue stems from two completely separate vulnerabilities. The first one allowed attackers to gain full root access for the WD MyBook Live through a modified language configuration file. Now that bug has been present ever since 2018. Now you may ask yourself, why did uh, they not patch a bug three years ago? Well, it turns out that three years before that, Western Digital stopped supporting the platform so they haven't released any patches for it. So this bug's been sitting out there for a while. Um, the newest zero-day attack that was discovered by Ars Technica was the one that allowed drives to be reset to factory defaults without prompting through a remote shell. Oops. Researchers believe now that what they're actually seeing is that the first exploit, the root access one from 2018, was being actively used by a ransomware slash botnet crew to recruit these WD drives to participate in a botnet. Okay, great. So where does the second exploit come in and why are people's drives getting wiped? Well, it turns out they think that there's a separate crew, possibly a rival who wants to um, slam these guys and possibly get a little egg on their face. So they found out how to remotely wipe all of the drives to prevent the exploit from happening because the original exploit, they were gonna be persistent for a while. Well, when they reset the drives factory defaults to clear out the exploit, that means your data goes with it. So here's what you need to do. If you're still running one of these devices, unplug it from the internet, or at least block capability for people to get into your network to use it. Um, and the other problem is, is that someone's going to have to figure out how to fix this mess. And I promise you, it's not going to be Western Digital because they're not going to write a patch for a six-year-old device that, you know, quite honestly, they would rather you upgrade anyway. Um, so yeah, um, Stephen, is this why connected storage without some kind of guardrails or authentication protection mechanisms is a bad idea? You know, Tom, they're always after me IoT. The, I really appreciate the, uh, the, the security perspective on this problem. So let me give you the storage perspective. Um, frankly, these MyBook Live drives are old. We're talking about technology that was created back when the 
third digit of the year was a one instead of, uh, you know, or maybe even a zero. Uh, we're talking about uh, drives that were end of life six years or seven years ago uh, in some cases. Uh, these are old, old storage devices. And frankly, um, if you're complaining that all your data was lost when the drive was wiped, um, I got something to tell you, buddy. That drive was about to crash and die anyway. Um, I mean, we're talking 10-year-old hard drives that have been spinning continuously in an enclosed container with, sorry, Western Digital, poor cooling for 10 years these things are dying. Um, that being said, uh, this shouldn't have happened. Uh, this was a frankly a sloppy programming job on their part, and they left open a couple of vulnerabilities that uh, could be remotely exploited. Um, these things uh, apparently used uh, UPnP to open up ports, so even if people did have a firewall, they could still be accessible over the internet. Um, Western Digital is saying to unplug it. Yeah, that's probably the best thing to do right now. Uh, Western Digital has also said that they're going to work on a way to uh, recover the data off the drives, which is awful nice of them, considering, again, that these things have been end of life for six years uh, and are probably 10 years old at this point. Um, but that being said, uh, if you were using encryption, uh, you're not going to be able to get your data back. And uh, many people who, were, uh, who lost data because of this wipe are probably not gonna really know or investigate or go through the hassle of recovering that data. And I think that in many cases, the data is gonna be lost. So there you have it. Um, effectively, this shows just how bad a lot of IoT devices are. The only reason that this thing is a story is because we're talking storage and storage is persistent. But this is actually no different in my mind from the remote exploits that have affected um, security and surveillance cameras that have affected other kinds of IoT devices. Um, you know, uh, all those kind of, and I'm not using a particular brand here, but like, like web connected TV devices and, uh, you know, interconnect, internet connected appliances and so on. Many of those have similar problems with them. And I've actually, uh, being a uh, Part of the retro commute, computing community, I've actually enjoyed uh, some of the exploits for these things. So, for example, once the transporter was no longer supported, the old uh, uh, Jeff Barrel post Drobo thing, uh, I hacked mine to get into it. I hacked my Pogo plug to get into it just so that I could uh, run uh, arbitrary code on it. Uh, I've got a iOmega iX4 that uh, was similarly compromised uh, in order to give you root access and shell. Uh, and again and again and again, down we go. Uh, that's sort of how it is with these kind of IoT devices. I think, frankly, that we as an industry are expecting too much uh, from these devices. And um, frankly, it's, it's not going to live up to user expectations. I mean, if a user thinks that something's going to be secure and you're delivering it on an IoT platform with haphazard shoddy coding, it's not going to be secure and it's going to get hacked eventually. And uh, maybe that's today, maybe that's 10 years down the road, but it's going to happen. So from a storage perspective, uh, don't expect too much from these devices. And secondly, from a storage perspective, uh, don't expect that a single hard drive sitting on your shelf running continually for 10 years with poor ventilation and books and plants and cats stacked around it is going to last for 10 years because it ain't. 
and uh, let me let me make a special note here to any malicious actors out there who are thinking uh, about their future plans to create a botnet. Uh, don't do it on a device that's probably going to get chucked out the door in a year anyway when all of the pieces inside of it die and everyone's like, oh, well, I've got to upgrade to the newest, latest, greatest, whatever. Um, you know, use a little forethought. I think you'll be happier with your um, results. Stay away from the storage. Arr. <laughs> well, with the sage wisdom of uh, the Dread Pirate Storage Roberts over here. Uh, that will just about do it for this episode of The Rundown. We want to thank each and every one of you for tuning in each week because we enjoy being able to bring you the news. Um, Stephen, uh, we've got some exciting stuff coming up. What are some of the things that you're working on that people should be aware of? Well, uh, as I said, I strongly recommend checking out the videos from Cloudfield A11, especially that Intel video. Uh, we'll link to it in the show notes here uh, if you want to see uh, what LinkedIn, what Intel is saying about uh working with uh, or working against AMD in the cloud. Uh, but the rest of the presentations are great as well. And those are all up on YouTube. So just go to YouTube slash Tech Field Day and click on the Cloud Field Day 11 playlist. Pretty much anyone listening to this is going to find a few really valuable presentations in there. Uh, we're also working on Storage Field Day, uh, which is coming up in uh, August. So keep an eye out for that. And uh, I'm going to announce here for the first time that we're going to be doing a special event with Dell as well in August. And uh, you should definitely check that out too, because we're going to learn a lot about Dell Technologies Enterprise offerings in that. So that's also the first week in August. Yeah. And uh, I've got some more events coming up as well that are focused on networking and mobility. And I will tell you that we have a very exciting announcement that we just put up on gestaltit.com this week, that there will be a networking field day focused on service providers. So if you are the kind of person that wants to know how your ISP cooks on the back end with things like BGP and MPLS and EVPN, you're definitely going to want to tune in. You can find out more information about that if you head over to gestaltit.com right now. We have a link to some of the thought process behind it, and uh, we'll be adding more information about that event coming up soon. But in the meantime, you can also hang out at gestaltit.com where you can read some of the great articles that we've been writing about, some of the events that have been going on, some of the briefings that we've been involved in, um, some of the exciting technology that's been coming up, as well as some favorites that we have of our uh, community's posts you know, little things that you can learn, little interesting analysis. Um, but you can also check out our on-premise IT roundtable podcast. You can also check out episodes of Utilizing AI. We have a lot of great information out there that you want to make sure you check out. We're going to go ahead and sign off for today. We will be back next week to start Q3 of 2021 with some more great news and uh, possibly a little bit of snark. You'll just have to wait and see. Uh, but for Stephen Foskett, myself, Tom Hollingsworth, our great community, and our great members of Gestalt IT, thank you very much for tuning in, and we will see you very soon.